Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, September 26th, 2008. This week, episode 96 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the wingman Chris Boisel at the controls. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon. The Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, won't be able to join us today. He's down at the Connections Conference and in meetings, but uh, we do have Carl Grimes of Healthy Habitats, who's going to help us out, and our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, is with us. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We're going to have uh, Donald Weeks, CIH and CSP, co-editor of the new AIHA Green Book. Looking forward to this show. In my humble opinion, this will be a document that could become the standard for recognition, evaluation, and control of indoor mold in this industry. We'll then have an IE Connections What's News update at halftime. We'll bring Carl and uh, Dr. Dieter in for a couple comments. Then we'll go back with Don for the second half of the show, and we'll finish up with our roundtable where we bring everybody back in to round things up. We've been working on the iaqradio.com website. Check out the blog after the show every week. And before we get started, we've got to thank our sponsors. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, to contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. All you have to do now is press 1 to join the show. You can also download the show from our website, iaqradio.com. Go to the link that says go to the show or get the show from iTunes. We appreciate suggestions and we'll answer questions. We've been getting a few in, actually quite a few, at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Don't forget you can get your IICRC continuing education credits 
or IAQ console renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. Again, my email is joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Since Cliff's not here, I'm going to handle the microband trivia question today. Okay, congratulations. We do have a winner from last week. Jerry Cronin, uh, a new winner. Thank, good to hear from you, Jerry. The correct answer was Firemark. The question had to do with insurance signs on buildings, and uh, Jerry gave us a little extra information that there are still some of those signs on a few buildings in uh, New York and the Philadelphia area. So thanks for your participation, Jerry. This week's question we have these small black spots that look like specks of tar all over our white vinyl siding on our house. It's on the porch, my windows, but it is worse on the siding. It goes all the way up to my second story windows and is even under my soffit and on my gutters. What do you think it is? Looks like a tough one Cliff came up with this week. All right, I think we have a little intro music for our guest. Growing Donald Weeks is in-air environmentals certified industrial hygienist. He has been providing environmental and occupational health and safety assistance for more than 30 years. He holds a BS in sciences in environmental science from Ramapo, Ramapo College in New Jersey and an MA in occupational safety and health from New York University. He is a partner in in-air environmental located in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. He is affiliated with the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, ASHRAE, and the Air and Waste Management Association. Don is also a member of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate and a past vice president for the practice of that organization. Let's get Don on the line. Hello, Don. Do we have you with, have you with us? Hello, hello. How are you today? Great, great. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I uh, plowed my way through recognition, evaluation, and control of indoor mold, also known as the Green Book. And uh, tell you, it was interesting reading, Don, and, and I think it will become, as I said at the beginning, a document that many, many people will uh, be happy to find in their library. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, I, when I say plowed through it, it wasn't because it wasn't hard to read. It was hard to read. It was easy to read. It's just a long, uh, a lot of information. So, looking forward to talking to you a little bit about it. Let me give a little background here on the on this. Uh, well, let me get some from you first. Why was it necessary for AIHA to develop another book on mold? Well, uh, as you, as you're implying, there have been other books on mold. <laughs> By AIHA and other uh, agencies, uh, other companies, and other uh, associations such as ACJH and and certainly um, IAQA and, and and other organizations. The reason AIHA developed another book on mold is that we believe 
that we, we thought when we, we first started working on this that we needed to put together in one book uh, all the items that have been talked about in other books where you might have a, uh, a book such as the Field Guide by AIHA that talks about the uh, sampling methods that would be used for doing, for, for doing evaluations of mold. You didn't necessarily have anything about remediation in that book. So we felt that there was a need for a book that was comprehensive on the subject from, from beginning to the end of the, uh, the process. And it came out very well in that respect. How many people were a part of this? Uh, I, I, I assume, and from looking at the names of the authors in here, this was a big effort. And uh, what type of background did they come from? Yes, it was uh, approximately 50 to 60 uh, different authors that we, we had involved in this. And they came from a variety of different backgrounds, uh, primarily from industrial hygiene, but also from, from engineering, uh, from uh, mycology, uh, microbiology. Uh, we had uh, academics. We had governmental officials. We had uh, consultants. We had uh, remediation specialists. We tried to, to, to take in account of the, in the entire uh, spectra of people who would be involved with uh, indoor mold so that, uh, that we had, a, a, again, since we were looking to do a comprehensive review of the subject, we would have individuals that could provide us with uh, their viewpoints uh, on this subject and include them into a, 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 a book that would, be, uh, that would cover the subject from top to bottom. Okay, before we go into this too deeply, let me explain to the listeners that haven't looked at the book yet. There are three sections to the book with 20 chapters and over 250 pages. What I'd like to do is kind of take it one section at a time to discuss some of the key points. Um, section one is the underlying principles and background for evaluation and control. And first, I want to say this section really got my attention, especially the first chapter. It was really well done and written in an understandable and really an interesting manner. Much of the information is compiled from other texts and published papers, and it's probably the most comprehensive summary I've ever seen. And it, it would be an excellent primary reference for anyone involved in investigation and management, maybe even remediation. If we have time to talk a little bit more about that, we can. The book quotes from Damp Buildings and Health that there is sufficient evidence of an association between damp buildings, damp environments, and asthma symptoms in sensitized persons, cough, upper respiratory tract symptoms, and wheeze. The same is true for an association with the presence of mold. There is also with a limited or suggestive evidence for a lower respiratory illness in healthy children. Can you tell us a little bit more about exactly what this lower respiratory illness in healthy children is? Well, symptoms of lower respiratory system infections in children can include uh, such items as uh, shallow coughing, which continues throughout the day or night. It can uh, also be uh, fever, which may be high with some, with some of the res lower respiratory uh, system uh, infections, such as pneumonia. Uh, also, it can be difficulty breathing, uh, such as rapid breathing, or grunting, which can be heard during the breathing out, uh, the exhaling uh, phase of breathing. Uh, now, most babies grunt occasionally when they sleep, but grunting that occurs with rapid shallow, shallow breathing may indicate low respiratory system infection. Um, there may be wheezing, uh, which is a different sound than the croup, but it is also a, a, a typical lower respiratory system infection. 
and there may be uh, a, um, a, a flaring of the nostrils and using the neck, chest, and abdominal muscles to breathe, causing a sucking in between or under the ribs, and this is known as retractions. Now, respiratory uh, problems may have many causes, but what we're saying is that in this particular case with the IOM, um, uh, they're saying that there's some limited or suggested evidence that, that, that the presence of mold may cause these uh, uh, respiratory, lower respiratory analysis in healthy children. Let me, uh, let's see if we can bring Carl on for just a moment. This next question's right up his alley. And uh, Carl, are you with us? Yes, I am, Joe. Carl, thanks oh, for joining God. us, and uh, it's, it's great to have you. We've got Carl Grimes on the line from Healthy Habitats calling in from Denver. Carl, how about if you take this next one, if you don't mind? Okay. Do you have a question for me, or you want me uh, to ask? No, I was, going to ask, I was going to have you ask the next one on the list here. Do you have that list? I can go with uh, it. No, I, I, I'll go I, with it. I have to look for Sorry. In the meantime, if you can think of a follow-up, let me know. Don, the next thing I wanted to know is, is, is it safe to say that AIHA considers mold or dampness in buildings to be a public health hazard? Uh, yes, I, I think it is safe to say that in the sense that dampness uh, has, in, as we just talked about, uh, in buildings has been, has been a, uh, since the uh, IOM report came out in 2004, has been, has been considered a public health hazard. Um, and in some cases, mold, uh, presence of mold in buildings also is, is that way as well. AIHA con is concerned about these items because of the, the fact that, uh, that uh, mold and, public and, and, and dampness in buildings has led to, to uh, issues with regards to public health and then, that, that needs to be addressed in that regard. That's why the books have come out. I'm curious. Uh, we've mentioned dampness a few times, and I've always had a little trouble with this this word, and I don't know a good definition for dampness. Can you help me with that? Well, I, I think that the definition that, that is in the book um, is that it is the presence of unwanted and excessive moisture within buildings, and uh, it, it, is, uh, it is that that dampness in buildings is linked with the illness of occupants and deterioration of buildings. So it, 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 uh, it is a, a that that presence within the building of moisture, unwanted and excessive, which which is the uh, is the cause of dampness. Now you're going to have moisture within buildings, either for relative humidity or for in some cases leaks, but it's when it becomes excessive and unwanted that it becomes dampness. Okay, let's bring Carl back in for just a moment. Carl, any follow up to that? Yeah, um, I want to have a follow up question on the dampness, Don. Um, it, it, I guess it comes down to uh, situations where there's a disagreement about how much dampness is wanted or unwanted, how much mold is, is okay or not wanted, and of course people that feel they're being harmed by it have a lower uh, level of tolerance for it, and the people that feel that they're being unjustly accused or charged with uh, some sort of responsibility or liability, of course, tend to polarize the other way, and I realize this is a very difficult question that probably can't really be answered definitively, but instead of numbers, which aren't acceptable because there's no permissible exposure levels for mold and there's no real exposure or amounts of dampness, you know, a hard number, is it, how, how do we interpret dampness and excessive mold or something like that uh, from, from uh, this 
public health perspective? Well, um, I, the best way I've had it defined for me was in a presentation that uh, my, one of my co-editors, uh, David Miller, gave at the uh, a session in New York City in 2004 uh, where we were regarding uh, mold and, and uh, remediation workers, uh, a publication that came out in 2005 about this particular session. He defined mold as filth. Basically, if you look at it from that viewpoint, we don't expect people to live with in filth. We don't expect people, therefore, to live with mold. Basically, it is a, a, a form of, of, of uh, uh, because it is a, uh, a form of filth, uh, mold can be addressed as something that needs to be cleaned up no matter what the situation is, whether it be due to an excess, excessive uh, moisture or due to neglect or lack of maintenance. If, it, if we address it as a public health issue from that viewpoint, the public health code is very clear uh, in most, most jurisdictions. We do not expect people to live with filth. Therefore, we should not expect people to live with mold. Okay. One more health uh, question here, Don. Do you see more evidence coming in for the numerous other health effects oftentimes blamed on mold or dampness exposure? There is certainly considerable more research going on, uh, not necessarily here in the United States, in, the, in North America. I'm, I'm broadening it out to Canada too, in this case. Uh, but in in the conferences that I, I'm, I'm privileged to attend overseas and, and and particularly in Europe, there's a considerable amount of, of research going on currently, uh, which which is showing more and more uh, evidence of the link between uh, dampness and mold and specific types of illnesses. So I do expect that as time goes on, these papers will, uh, will coalesce themselves into a, 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 uh, a consensus of what type of illnesses will be uh, considered to be related to dampness and to mold and which ones are not. But the research is being done. It just isn't necessarily being uh, as readily available as it should be here in, in North America. Okay. There's a, a passage on page seven of the book. It's about a study by Gorney and colleagues, and this is something that has come up in previous shows, and that's why it caught my attention. They were studying the release of particles from mold-contaminated ceiling tile, and there were small particles equal to or smaller than, and I believe it should be 0.3 micrometers, but I could be wrong, and they outnumbered spores by 320 times. Other studies appear to have confirmed these results, and the conclusion is that both the number and small size of such particles is significant from an exposure point of view. Now, we've had numerous mycologists on the show, and there has some been, been you know, some debate about these spore fragments. And it seems as though the authors of the Green Book are saying, you know, the debate, the debate is basically over. These fragments exist, and they are a significant issue with respect to exposure. Can you comment on that? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I'd say that the study points to the potential significance of these spore fragments with regards to exposure. Uh, and I think the Green Book is pointing out the reasons why these fragments may be important. It says, for example, that the small particles may convey large exposures to uh, larger exposures to allergens and toxins than do spores or large fragments because of their large aggregate surface area per mass unit. 
and other components of the exposure mixture, such as mycotoxins and allergens, may adsorb to this larger aggregate surface area. Also, small particles can penetrate more of the respiratory system than spores can. This is deeper penetration of the lung to areas where there are, where there are to deeper areas of the lung. There may be uh, less physical defenses in this, these areas in the lung, and the resonance time of these particles may be longer. And so what we're saying is small particles may be of particular in, uh, importance as agents for health impact. However, current methods focusing on intact whole spores may be imprecise indicators of exposure if the most important issue are with the smaller particles. So I don't know if the, if the debate is over. However, what we're saying is we, there is certainly enough evidence to show that that these spore fragments and these smaller particles may be of significance in terms of the uh, potential exposure. Okay. And, and was I correct that that should be 0.3 micrometers? Yes, I believe that is correct. Okay. And we'll talk about that one after the show, if you don't mind. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's go to another statement. Um, the 1996 AIHA, American Industrial Hygiene Association, recommendations continue to be appropriate risk management guidance for the industrial hygienist. So we're talking 12 years later here. Those initial recommendations continue to be appropriate. Can you review for us what those 1996 recommendations were? Well, now, this is from the, uh, the uh, 1996 uh, AIHA field guide. Uh, which has been updated in, 19, in 2005. However, when the book, this book, the Green Book, was was uh, was going back over the uh, uh, the risk management role of an industrial hygienist, they went back and looked at what those what that original field guide had said in 1996, uh, and this is some of the things that they said. They said that that. The risk management decisions are required of an industrial hygienist in the following conditions. Number one uh, would be that the confirmed presence of facultative pathogens, which are fungi capable of inducing pulmonary infections in humans, such as uh, Aspergillus fumigatus and Aspergillus flavus. So if you have that confirmed presence, that's one condition where you would, you would need to make risk management decisions. And the other is the presence of fungi such as Stachybotrys charterum, known to result in occupational diseases in part due to their potent toxins. And these decisions are to be made promptly as opposed to weeks or months later. And these risk management decisions are to be made on the basis of the conditions as they exist in the building in question, such as the presence of susceptible populations, the occupancy of the building, and the sampling results. The industrial hygienist is to use professional judgment as to what needs to be done to remediate the mold. So, for example, they, they use the we use in the book the example that recommendations for a normally unoccupied building with a modest amount of contamination would differ from the situation in which there was a significant amount of mold damage in a school. And occup occupants with particular susceptibility would be handled differently from a healthy working population. So the idea is that risk management decisions made by a professional uh, industrial hygienist would have to take those into account, but if you have these two conditions, then these risk management decisions have to be made promptly. Okay. Well, thank you for that up there, you know, thorough explanation. Now, there's another section, and I, I, you know, I keep going back to these sections, but I think it's the only way to set this up. It's on case reports and clusters of uh, idiopathic pulmonary hemorrhage, IPH. I hope I got that right. Toward the end the following statement is made. 
Given the significant new information regarding mechanisms, effects in young animals, and other findings, it seems policy that encourages urgent risk management is quite useful. I get the impression we have not heard the last about this IPH issue and the stachybotrys potentially causing this. I would agree with you there. Um, this, this has been an ongoing issue for well, 12, 13 years now. Um, I think the question is, could we someday find that stachybotrys exposure or a combination of exposures in areas where stachybotrys can cause IPH? Uh, I, my opinion is, I'm not a mycologist, but I can say based on the, on the type of, of uh, uh, reports that I'm seeing that that possibly may be the case. But it will take, uh, when, these, when the current research is completed by mycologists and others, the findings will, 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 either sh- will most likely show that the stachybotrys uh, is going to either, it, well, it can either cause this or it will be one of the factors involved with IPH, bleeding from the lungs, basically. Apparently, there's no proof of the biological effects of mycotoxins, and this, this statement is in the IOH uh, document, uh, that no proof exists of the biological effects of mycotoxins used by indoor occupancy of buildings, buildings with mold growth. But it also states, and this is where the second part is not always quoted, neither has the possibility of such biological effects been ruled out. The research is not there yet. Uh, so I think that we're still looking at whether or not this is going to be something that we're, we're going to be able to resolve uh, by the research or whether this is something that's going to continue to be an issue for, for the foreseeable future. And I'd, I'd like to point out to the listeners, too, that if you get a chance to purchase this book and read it, that section is, is very interesting. There were a lot more case studies mentioned there than I realized existed, Don. Is that, uh, was that new to you, or were you familiar with all that? No, I, I have to say that a lot of this was new. I mean, basically, uh, the, even if you follow this, this particular item closely, um, there, there, there's, there's a lot of ongoing research that either we haven't necessarily uh, seen uh, uh, in, a, in a book of this nature before, or has not been necessarily covered as extensively as, and put into one location. So I think it's, it's important that people realize that, 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 that this book is, 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 as I said, is a comprehensive review of what is out there. By having the, rather the, rather, many of the academics involved, we were able to get these, uh, these, uh, these studies ferreted out and put into, uh, into the context of the overall discussion about stachybotrys and IPH. And made for fascinating reading for those of us those of us that were just familiar with Dr. Dearborn and his work in Cleveland, which was later, you know, not completely dismissed, but essentially put on the back burner because it wasn't definitive, I guess. That's right. This, this, these studies that you have been referring to uh, go well beyond what is what is was was discussed initially with the with the Dearborn studies in Cleveland, and go into a number of other cases that uh, are related. And, and maybe maybe more of evidence in terms of what it is that's happening with Stacky and, uh, and IPH. Okay, let's bring Carl back in, see if he has a question or, or a comment up to this point, and then uh, it'll be almost halftime here. Carl? Yeah, uh, thanks, Joe. Uh, this, is, this is very interesting. As uh, uh, you know, Joe, uh, Don and I have talked uh, about this uh, previously uh, several weeks ago, and as I read through the book also, I learned more, and uh, just hearing what you're saying today, Don, just 
not only uh, gives me some information that I might have missed the first reading through there, but it kind of gives it a, another context. There's one that's kind of a technical question here, but it has to do with the, the way buildings get wet and the way they dry and when mold grows. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the industry, we hear that mold, mold starts growing within two to three days or that it grows, it starts growing more quickly than that but it becomes large and it grows large enough to be visible within a couple of days. But yet people that do drying don't usually see that. It takes three days or more to dry it, and they don't see mold growth often until afterwards or toward the, not afterwards, but toward the end of it. Is there is this uh, this difference between how materials get wet and how they get dry explain this kind of anomaly or unexpected uh, uh I guess a, a better way to say is how reality doesn't quite jive with the theory. Well, that's it. I mean, basically, uh, you, you can see uh, that in the book we're talking about the differences between the absorption, absorption curve and when a, dry, when a dry material is taking up water from ambient atmosphere and the, and the corresponding desorption uh, curve. Uh, you don't necessarily see uh, always the, uh, the, with the measurement devices that we have now, uh, exactly what the uh, water activity is. It, it's kind of a kind of a, a, a misconnection. It's an order of an indirect way of measuring things. So yes, what we see generally is that uh, you, you're doing this 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 drying out of significantly wet buildings, and it, it can take three to four more days to dry them out. As you're reducing the uh, water activity, the amount of water activity that you have in the, uh, the various building materials will uh, will will prevent in, or at least not foster uh, rapid or, 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 or relatively rapid mold growth. So you're, getting, you're not seeing the mold growth because you're, you're drying the materials out uh, as you go along. You're reducing the, the water activity. Certain water activity is necessary in these materials to, uh, to foster mold growth. By reducing it below what, what is considered necessary, you're, 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 you're not going to have the mold growth that you would expect in the 24 to 48 hours if the materials remain significantly wet. And in addition, if you seal off the area, which a lot of people will do, you're also not seeing necessarily the mold spores coming into that area, which are the third component that you need. You need the substrate, you need the wetness, and you need the mold spores. If you don't have mold spores coming in, you're not going to see the growth either. Okay. Uh, so uh, can I summarize that it appears, at least from the research so far, that mold grows better when things are getting wet as opposed to when they're drying out? Yes, because the, the, the water activity in, in materials that are drying out is, 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 is being reduced much more so than if you basically see materials getting wet. So you're going to see more and more growth on materials getting wet than you are to materials getting, getting dry. Okay. Dawn, at this point, what I'd like to do is bring our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on. Good. Oh, got to have your music, Dieter. Well, that better be good music. <laughs> <laughs> a little Beethoven for you today. Good afternoon, Dieter. I'm, I'm switching over to the other phone. Okay. That any, any questions or comments so far? Well, uh, yeah. I, I, there, there is there's the, the one comment which is really the bottom line of everything we were talking about, and that is the dose-response concept. 
Yeah, if you take a rat and you give it one gram of something and the rat is dead 10 minutes later, what do you know? Well, you know that one gram is killing it. You don't know whether millions of a gram will do the same thing. And that is the problem we have with these molds all over the place. Nobody really has established a dose-response curve to stachybotrys. I don't care what it is. We don't have it. In other words, you know, how many spores does it take to have an effect on the average person? And I mean, let's, let's keep out the people over 100 years and the people under one year. And not that they are not important, but yeah, you, 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 you can't have 100% coverage for everything. That doesn't work that way. And we haven't done that. There is no research money for it. There wasn't really interested, uh, interest in it. Harriet Birch was the only one who was interested in moles, and everybody was, I don't want to say laugh at her, but ah, that is that field, you know, that nobody is interested in when she did it 30 years ago. So that is a major thing that has to be done. And um, to, to answer, I mean, very important questions definitively. Okay. Well, let me ask Dawn real quick. Dawn, you're one of the few people I know who travels overseas. Is is this happening more in other parts of the country, or is it happening more here now? We just don't see it quite yet. Well, I think the research is, is being done overseas. I, I agree with, uh, with what was said about Harriet Burr. She was certainly one of the pioneers in this area. Uh, but it, if you go, if you go, like I did just recently, I had the, again, as I said, the privilege to travel to Indoor Air 2008 in, in uh, Copenhagen. Um, the research is being done um, in in overseas uh, locations. The uh, WHO, uh, which is the World Health Organization, is sponsoring a fair amount of research being done in Europe at the moment, as well as many research uh, institutes in uh, Finland, Germany, uh, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, and places of that nature. So yes, the research is out there. Uh, it just hasn't coalesced into a consensus as yet. I think that still takes time, uh, and as any researcher will tell, tell you at the end of their presentation, more research, more research is needed. Uh, so I think that uh, we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. It's just it's uh, it's getting to be uh, more and more apparent what the what the uh, what the problems are. But I don't know if we'll ever get to the point of knowing how many mold spores cause illness. Uh, it would be similar to counting how many uh, angels can be on the pin, head of the pin, but I think you, you can say this, that people are going to see that, again, mold is a cause of illness that needs to be addressed, and I'm, I'm seeing that more and more when I, when I travel over to these, uh, to these conferences. All right. Well, thanks for the first half so far, Don. We're going to go to our midpoint break here, and then we'll bring you back if that's okay. Yep. Very good. Before we go any further, we've got to make sure we thank our sponsors. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. 
Okay, let's go back to uh, What's News segment with Glenn Feldman. I think we have an intro spot. Speaking of sponsors, here's one of our favorites, Glenn Feldman. What's news? Hello, Joe. How are you today? Great, Glenn. Good to have you. Oh, what a great guest Don Weeks is, and what a wonderful program we've got so far. Boy, the conversations you've had in the first half of the show dovetail perfectly into my first story. Joe, you know what month we're in? <laughs> I know, but maybe our listeners don't. It is Toxic Mold Awareness Month. Oh. I don't know if a lot of people knew that. Oh. <laughs> Toxic Mold Awareness Month was uh, an event that uh, I think was first uh, put forward by a group called the National Indoor Mold Society. They wrote a proclamation. They sent it around to uh, the governors of every state. Five of them signed it. Now, with all due respects to Don uh, Weeks here, I know he's a smart guy, and all these people who wrote the AIHA Green Book are smart people. They're missing something, because according to the proclamation signed by Jennifer uh, Granholm, the governor of the state of Michigan, and I quote, whereas most mold produce mycotoxins, which are poisonous to humans and animals, and kill over 500,000 people each year in the United States, and whereas mycotoxin exposure can be characterized by heightened sensitivity to small amounts of mold, air pollution, petrochemicals, and other toxins, so on and so forth and so on, and it gets to the end of the proclamation, and it resolves that the governor of Michigan declared it National Toxic Mold Awareness Month, and you can Google National Toxic Mold Awareness Month, and you can read the proclamation written by that governor, as well as the governors of uh, Pennsylvania, Mississippi, Florida, um, and Nevada. You had to say Pennsylvania, didn't you? I did. Yes, I did. (laughs) Let's just Uh, uh, say real quick that uh, IAQ Radio is not endorsing National Toxic Mold Month. We're just getting the news out, right, Glenn? That's exactly right. Well, (laughs) it is interesting, though. But five governors did sign this. Um, At the same time, there were some governors who who flatly denied signing it, including the governors of uh, North Carolina, Texas, and Tennessee. But it uh, it is interesting for the news. Let's move on to some other stuff here. I've got two stories for you I want to present today. The first is a new EPA program on indoor air that is set for launch in 2009. There was a lot of talk about this uh, last month, or excuse me, this month at the uh, HUD Healthy Housing Conference that was held in Baltimore, Maryland. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is going to be releasing the Indoor Air Package Program, which gives homes a seal of approval if they use certain building techniques to protect against radon pests and pollutants. It will be launched nationally as early as next year, said Tom Kelly, director of EPA's indoor air program. He added that the new program builds on the EPA's Energy Star program, which began in 1992 to promote efficient appliances. The package is already in use in five states. Um, The Healthy Home Initiative has been growing for a decade, prompted largely by a push to remove lead from homes. It's It's basically merging with efforts to build energy efficient homes. And um, one of the statistics that really 
kind of hit me right in the head was from uh, this fellow, uh, John Gant, who's uh, the head of HUD, uh, their Office of Healthy Homes and Lead Hazard Controls, and he said, quote, we've hit a home run with lead. The number of kids with lead poisoning fell from 890,000 in 1992 to 310,000 in 2002. So in a 10-year period, they cut the number in about a third. That's pretty impressive. So if you want to learn more about that, go to the EPA's website, epa.org, search the Indoor Environment Division, and look for Indoor Air Package Program. The last news item I wanted to talk on today is also related to guidance out there for people. Um, the Healthy Schools Campaign, HSC, has released an expanded second edition of the, quote, Quick and Easy Guide to Green Cleaning in Schools. The second edition includes a new section on sustainability, green cleaning for food service, integrated pest management, new technologies, and more. It was developed with the support of 16 national education stakeholder organizations and 39 cleaning industry corporate leaders following the distribution of more than 70,000 copies of the popular and highly regarded first edition. Anyone who's interested in seeing this document or, or actually downloading it and having it can go to the website www.greencleanschools.org. That's all one word, greencleanschools.org, and they can download the guide. And again, it's called Quick and Easy Guide to Green Cleaning in Schools. Those are my top three stories for the day, Joe. All I'll right. turn it back over to you in another uh, great segment of the show, and I look forward to joining you for the roundup. That's what I was going to ask. Thanks. And, we'll, we'll bring you back. And I'd like to, before, you, before I break off, I'd love to hear Don's comment about the uh, five governors who are attributing a half million deaths in the U.S. to mycotoxins we every will, year. Uh, we will do that uh, right now. Let's go back to Don. Hello, Don. Hi. I don't know what I don't know what I can I say on that. Uh, do you have any comments on the national toxic mold statistics? Well, um, all I can say is that if there were 500,000 deaths occurring from any cause, no matter what it was in the United States, I, I would have, I would think there'd be a national campaign to <laughs> to eliminate that cause. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, uh, you know, we have had uh, programs for uh, indoor radon. We've had programs for, for asbestos. We've had programs for lead paint. We've had a variety of different programs that have been promoted at the federal level for many, many years. Um, none of those programs that I can remember back going back to the 1980s and, and when they, in the 70s when they came out uh, would, would, have, would, would have said that 500,000 people a year are dying from any of those causes. I, I'm not sure of the national statistics, but I don't think we, we have uh, a, a, a – a, uh, I would say that probably in a typical year, probably in the United States, you probably have a turnover of approximately a million and a half to two million people dying. Uh, and, of course, people born and, and moving into the United States. So if you have that and you figure that, that 500,000 of them are contributed to toxic mold, that's – that would be an enormous, uh, enormous waste of, of human beings, and it would certainly be something that would be a national campaign on immediately. Well, I think the folks uh, as a part of that group are, are well-meaning. They're just—I uh, don't think they realize they're not helping the helping the issue uh, with those types of statements. So, I it's, guess we'll... meaning, meaningless statistics don't necessarily add to the overall dialogue that you can have on this issue. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, listen, Don, what I'd like to do is um, I'm going to skip Section 2 on building evaluation. And you and I had talked earlier about 
possibly bringing some of the other authors on on a later show to talk more about Section 2, Building Evaluation, and maybe Section 4. Uh, but I know your area is more of Section 3, Evaluation and Interpretation of Data. And I had a couple quick questions there. And then I do have one or two that we really need to get to on uh, Section 4, though, which also somewhat ties in with interpretation of data. Let's start with, um, I got the impression the authors were still evaluating ERMI, the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index, and didn't really go into any great detail on that method. Do you have any comments? Uh, I would say that's true. Um, basically, uh, uh, although certainly it was a, it's, it's a known uh, method that's out there, um, there is not a great deal of information and correlation of this information with, with, uh, with uh, other methods that are used for measuring mold to determine whether this method gives you an, an adequate or accurate uh, measurement of, of the problems in, in terms of moldiness in a building. So right at the moment, I'd say it's still a, an interesting uh, you know, research uh, uh, process, but it hasn't yet gotten into the, the point where it can be utilized by by, by uh, the, the professionals in the field. It's still a, a, an interesting item to discuss, but not necessarily one that's practical yet to be used out in the field. We get a lot of uh, restoration professionals that listen to the show. We kind of pride ourselves on doing indoor air quality restoration and building science issues. I'm glad the book attempted to promote a method for evaluating contents. That's a big issue in the restoration industry. Is an industrial hygienist necessarily the right person to evaluate contact contents, or, or should a restoration professional also be involved? Oh, I, I think restoration professionals should work with industrial hygienists, as uh, as they do on all remediation work, to determine the best me best methods for evaluating contents and then for remediating 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 <laughs> contents. Um, and in addition, I think there should be an agreement with the restoration professional who is involved in this process before the remediation takes place as to the criteria that to be used to evaluate the adequacy of the remediation. So yes, I think restoration uh, professionals should definitely be involved. It was a good section. I just I, I think we've got a long way to go in that area, but it, it was certainly a great attempt. Um, another thing that I saw, well, actually, I, I felt was a bit lacking, and maybe you can tell me why. I know this is a book on mold. Is there a similar book in the works from AIHA on recognition, evaluation, and control of bacteria and other organisms during water damage restoration? Well, uh, Joe, as I've talked to you about this previously, I've spent five years of my life on this book, and uh, I'm now <laughs> 55 years old. I'm not sure I have another uh, you know, five years to spend on that book. I definitely think it's a book that's necessary. Uh, and it certainly could be a future prod project, but at the moment there's there's nothing in the works that I'm aware of in regards for AIHA to do something on bacteria specifically. Okay, let me get one more in this section. Chapter 9, Documentation, has some really, I, I thought, very good forms uh, that people could use, I assume, but I, I wanted to clarify, are those forms... Uh, public domain, can people use them as a template, or do you have to buy the book, or, you know, how does that work? Well, uh, I think that the, the, certainly people who purchase the book can use them as a template. Um, I don't know of any other availability beyond that. Um, we haven't separated those out from the book itself, but anybody who buys the book can certainly use them as a template. 
then they're not available that I'm aware of on any of the AHI websites at the moment, but it's a good point uh, that I will I will bring up with uh, AHA and see if we can make those available in another format. I guess one more quick one, wall check sampling. A lot of uh, consultants, and by the way, I should mention that the book is pretty careful to include industrial hygienists and indoor environmental professionals, and, and they use the term competent persons in, in numerous places as well. So it doesn't seem to just limit the ability to do this type of work to certified industrial hygienists. It's a little more broad than that. Um, wall check sampling, which is used by a lot of people out in the industry, was not encouraged. Can you give me any comments on why? Well, um, I think the book covers the pros and cons of wall cavity sampling very well. I would say this, is that wall check sampling, the, the methodology is understood, but how to analyze the samples that you collect and what the interpretation of those samples might be is very is still unclear. Uh, so you can certainly collect samples, but you can I don't know if you necessarily know how what the data actually means. One of my rules of thumb for for doing this profession is uh, to never collect a sample to which you don't know what you're going to do with the data. And uh, in taking wall check samples, and I have done it in the past, I'm not really sure what I'm getting in terms of information. So I think right now the book covers the both the pros and cons of it. It's certainly a method out there, but we, we, we're not necessarily encouraging it simply because we're not really sure what to do with the data. Okay, one more from Chapter 3, then I've got to go on to Chapter 4. Uh, I think it's important for investigators to hear that the book recommends taking outdoor samples 30 feet above ground upwind. A am I accurate, first of all, in saying that? And secondly, can you tell us a little bit more about that recommendation and why it exists? Yeah, the book notes that this is the best possible location in theory. Uh, and notes that in practice, you know, it, it may not always be practical to do that. What they say is that in practice, sample locations should attempt to minim mimic this location, meaning the location 30 feet ab above ground uh, upwind, with the understanding that matching it exactly is not always possible. Now, I'm going to take the specific cir circumstances here I have in Canada. Uh, we often find the collecting of outdoor samples at all to be unpractical due to the weather conditions. Uh, I mean, I'd say three to four months a year, it's just not practical to take outside samples uh, during the winter. Uh, so outdoor samples above 30 feet above ground upwind is the, is the best location, best possible location in theory, but in practice, it, it depends on the circumstances in which you, uh, you find yourself. And here in Canada, during those months, we do not, we, we would, our samples would freeze and we would get absolutely no useful data. So we take samples, say, for example, in a, in a, uh, a covered location uh, such as a, uh, uh, some other uh, uh, indoor location other than the location where we have the mold problem. So it's a good recommendation. It's certainly something that we should keep in mind, but it is a, a good recommendation in theory and in practice may be somewhat different. Okay, I'm going to, I'd like to do one question from Section 4, Remediation and Control, and then we'll probably finish out with questions from, I believe it was Chapter 18 or 19 on uh, the cleanliness standard. But before we go there, um, I noticed the book used a combination of different guidances, you know, guidance documents, and they relied pretty heavily on um, Health Canada, some of the um, International Society for Indoor Air Quality 
publications, the New York City guidelines, but they also mentioned the IICRC S520 quite a bit and actually combined S520 with some other uh, documents for a mold cleanup matrix. Um, my, my co-host sent a question. He wants to know if you have any opinion on the accuracy or the practicality of S520, good, bad, or indifferent. Well, I I, um, I don't think I'm revealing anything to say that you, you, you gave me some of these questions a little bit yesterday, and I tried to, to download the S520 because I had not had a chance to purchase this yet. I was unsuccessful okay, okay. in getting the, in getting the, uh, the, the new uh, edition. I am still, I've now sent in a fax, and I'm hoping to get the, the 520. So I haven't had a real good chance yet to, to review that. I would say the following, though, is that what we tried to do in, in, the, in, the, in the Green Book is incorporate uh, all the different sources we could find, including the S520, into this into this book, and it was intended for the um, uh, field industrial hygienists who face these situations on a, on a daily basis. So, the practicality of the book was of paramount importance to the to the editors, the section heads, the authors. So we we try to emphasize you know where these sources were, including the S520, which we recognize as a as a standard in the restoration. Uh, business as as an area that we needed to be aware of as professionals, and we wanted to include those those categories uh, for water damage and everything else into the uh, into the book. Uh, when I have a chance, I'll I'll review that more carefully and perhaps give you a better answer at a later date. I'd appreciate. It. We're actually trying to put together a show next week for the revised S520. I'm just curious uh, on the old S520. They do include quite a bit from the you know the current. Well, not the current, the previous version. That's correct. Yeah, and we we recognize, as I said, that that was a standard from the restoration professional viewpoint. That you know that it talked a lot about uh, the the professional judgment of the IEP. And so when we we were writing the book, when we were putting the book together, we took into account that and, and many other uh, organizational uh, publications to to show the show the the field industrial hygienists face of these situations where they could get more information from the viewpoint of the various uh, other parties that are involved in remediation. So the S520, I, I think it's going to um, be a good document for industrial hygienists to to use as a as a as a method of communication with the risk restoration professionals about this particular part of the uh, of the field. All right, let me before we go to the roundup, I might as well get one out on the table here. We've got this fairly new and significant change with respect to trying to determine post remediation verification in the book, and it. Um, it recommends a cleanliness standard and utilizing gravimetric analysis of dust as opposed to indoor versus outdoor air sampling. Although it doesn't say you shouldn't do that, it does recommend that you know you could include that as well. But it seems to rely pretty pretty heavily on this standard or on this cleanliness standard. I have a question that came in from a listener. Can you explain the basis for the cleanliness standard, which utilizes this gravimetric analysis of dust, that is the weight of the dust collected from a surface, to determine whether bioaerosol contaminants have been sufficiently removed in a cleaning procedure? Well, uh, what the book talks about uh, in uh, Section 18 is judging the effectiveness of remediation. And it says the following: is that following, you know, final clearance in a medium or large-scale mold remediation process is usually carried out by, you know, industrial hygienist or an IEP, and it's facilitated by 
basically attention to the project overview, including verification of contractors' work practices, a thorough inspection of the remediated area, possibly including measurements of residual dust, and in some cases, not necessarily always warranted, appropriate microbial surface and air sampling. So although I, I did search the book very carefully to see if there was, in fact, something listed as a cleanliness standard, it's not specifically stated that way, but I can understand where an in the, the individual is talking about what, what, what is it that we're talking about in terms of this. And really what we're talking about, again, is goes back to what I said earlier. What is mold? Is, and if we say that mold is, in fact, filth, then what is the best way to measure whether or not the filth has been removed? If you're saying that, that filth has to be removed from a surface or from, from, from the uh, uh, from the uh, materials that have uh, been affected by the filth, then why not measure whether or not the filthiness, the filth has been removed by doing a dust measurement? Um, I think that, that air sampling, as we all know, has, has its uses and can be very useful in conjunction, uh, you know, as an adjunct to determining whether the, the indoor environment has been returned to a satisfactory condition. And in fact, in the book, they give us a little sidebar about how it can also reveal unexpected hidden mold. But if, if we, we, we basically take the, the, uh, the idea that, that, that uh, what we're doing is removing filth from an environment, then cleanliness is the opposite of filth. And by doing the measurement of the, of the, uh, uh, of the uh, surface of the, of the, the you know, animal analysis of the dust on the surface, they determine whether or not it is in fact sufficiently removed, we are showing that in fact filth has been removed. And that's that's the basis of what it is that we're attempting to do. Okay. I think that's a, a great answer to that question, and we're going to probably have a few more on that issue here as we go into what we call our roundup, Don. Hang in there. We're going to bring back uh, Dr. Dieter, uh, Carl Grimes, and uh, Glenn Feldman. I think we'll start with Carl since I had him on here. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Right, I had a feeling we might run a little over. Don, can you hang in there with us an extra five minutes or so? Yes, I can. Uh, we appreciate that. This We're going to have to have a second show, too. But let's start with Carl Grimes. Carl, any questions or comments? Yeah, I have uh, one of each, actually. A brief comment is that uh, the Glenn mentioned the conference in Baltimore on Healthy Homes Initiative and so forth, and you asked Don about the, the ERMI uh, methodology. Stephen Vesper, who's one of the lead researchers, gave a couple of presentations at that conference. And one of the things that he made quite clear is uh, really what Don said. This isn't quite ready to be used in the field. Now, I know there's a number of uh, uh, companies and individuals around the country that is relying heavily on the, the ERMI interpretation of mold data, but even the developer of it... Uh, uh, my understanding of what he said anyway is that uh, even the developer of that procedure says it's not quite ready for prime time. Now, this kind of leads into my question then for Don on what you were just talking about on the cleanliness standard and the, the weight of dust. Um, I, I've had situations where I, uh, 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 an area has been cleaned and it was originally identified using uh, dust collection. 
And then when I went back to uh, clear it and verify, it was like I couldn't get any dust, or at least not enough to weigh. So one is how how do you evaluate something that's not there, um, or at least you don't collect enough of it to get the weight? And wouldn't a white glove, black glove uh, testing of surfaces might be just as accurate, even though it's not quantifiable? Yes, that's that's correct. I mean, one of the things the book says is that collection and microbe, uh, microbial analysis of surface dust for water indicator or cellulose degrading fungi, although useful in building diagnostics, appears to have little added value in final clearance. Uh, so basically what we're looking at is you're looking at basically a, a white glove, black glove type situation. I mean, again, it, going back to the concept that what we're dealing with is filth, uh, you want to be in a position to say that you're that, uh, that the filth that was the present has been removed. And certainly that's an appropriate way, although not quantifiable, it's certainly an appropriate way to say that this area has been cleaned successfully. Okay, let's move over to uh, Dr. Dieter. Any questions or comments, Dieter? Yeah, well, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, National Toxic Mold uh, Month, huh? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, and we kill about 500,000. We chop off approximately... I think it's down a little bit, approximately 40,000 people a year in car accidents. And, of course, nobody cares about that at all because you never hear about it. Yeah, there was an accident. That's 40,000 people. And, um, you know, if an airplane falls down and uh, 20 people get killed, it's all over the news. It's uh, kind of interesting, isn't it? The how we look at life. Uh, perceptions of risk, as EPA yeah, would call it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. But... Um, yeah, you know, uh, you you and I have talked about it, and um, I I mentioned that we didn't know how or how to uh, look at asbestos fibers 30 years ago, and finally we have a standard method. Whether this one is right or wrong, I, yeah, that, that this is not the forum to discuss that. But we have a, a, a method which quote everybody is using, and with these biological systems, it's getting tougher and tougher. You know, an asbestos fiber is one thing, a mold spore, a bacterium, or a, um, a virus is something else. And this is going to be difficult. And the other big problem that I have is, you know, I can take asbestos samples over 24 hours, which kind of gives me a heck of a better idea of what the exposure would be to somebody in that environment than a two- or three-minute sample somewhere in the room. You know, how many samples should I take? 20, 50, 100? <coughs> So um, I think we will be um, talking about that one for quite some time on how to sample, where to sample, and how many samples to take. And then how to analyze those samples as well. And, and how to analyze. That's right. I mean, one guy uses this uh, uh, medium. The other one uses that medium. Uh, uh, 400X, 1000X, uh, That's right. Yep. Yep. Well, let's that's ask right. Don. Uh, Don, are we making any progress in that area? Well, I think we're we're making some progress in terms of, of, of coming together in terms of what is the consensus as to how many samples are to be taken. But there's still a, 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 an emphasis on samples versus a thorough inspection. And I, I think that's, that comes from the background of the individuals who are doing this type of work. Really, when you think about it, if you were a public health official and you were looking at these buildings, would you necessarily want to take a, a whole bunch of samples if, in fact, you saw a lot of visible mold? Probably not. 
So a thorough inspection may be the key item here as opposed to how many samples we should take. I would agree with that 100%, yes. And I think that's the point, is that we're, we're really looking towards uh, a, a change in the, in, in the way in which people approach this problem, not necessarily an emphasis on sampling, but more an emphasis on what is it you can visually see, what is it that you can actually touch, what is it that you can actually remediate, and that really requires a very thorough inspection. Thank you, sir. All right, let's go to uh, Glenn Feldman. Questions or comments? Uh, comment and question. First comment, uh, I don't make up the news, I just report it. <laughs> <laughs> but while we were talking, I went and did a quick search on something. Um, according to the EPA, smoking causes an estimated 160,000 cancer deaths in the United States every year. Wow. So I, I am of the firm belief that smoking is killing more people than mold. So take it for what it's worth. <laughs> um, my, my question, though, um, relates to something you were talking a little bit earlier about uh, the S520 standard, which, of course, a new edition that hasn't even, I don't think, uh, been, been made available in print yet, but uh, it has been approved and it's, it's in publication. And it still relies on the Condition 1, Condition 2, Condition 3 system for determining, determining the uh, environmental health or environmental status, whereas in my limited review of the Green Book, uh, I, I certainly see that it, it recognizes that in, in a table. But there's nothing um, I see out there that would help an indoor environmental professional kind of bridge the gap between what IICRC is looking for in a definition or, or a clearance according to these specific conditions and the Green Book. And so my question uh, for Don, and it, it might also be for Dieter and Carl, would be, you know, how do you see the, the the two sides coming together, if you will, uh, how do we how do we reconcile that we have basically two different um, two different methods or two different documents here telling us how to define the quality of the indoor environment? Let's start with Don. Well, I was going to say I think the 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 S five uh, five twenty remediation guidelines are um, are attempt what would be from the from the uh, IEP. Uh, viewpoint are a complement to the AIHA Green Book. Uh, they're not intended to be uh, a replacement for what it is that's in the Green Book. Although in terms of remediation, I think uh, Glenn has, has very well pointed out that there's a difference between the matrix that has been put into the Green Book and, and, and the uh, S520 uh, standard remediation guidelines. Uh, standards and, and guidelines. But I think that, that the, the reconciliation has got to come from, from both sides meeting together and discussing this perhaps in a, uh, a, 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 a either a conference or, or, or some uh, uh, one of the organizations such as IESO or someone else taking the initiative to say that these need to be resolved and, and, and work together to try to come up with something that both sides can accept. That's, you know, I'd, let's go real quick back to Carl and then, uh, Dieter, if you have any final comments, we've got to wrap things up. Carl? Yeah, I, I, that, I really appreciated your answer to that. And uh, very well worded and um, uh, concise, and it's exactly what needs to be happening. And uh, AIHA, in a sense, is kind of, created that template by looking not only at the academics and the research on the Green Book Bag, but specifically intentionally including practitioners 
not only of the consultants but also of uh, remediation. Uh, I think there's some difficult difficulties in bringing the two sides together from a technical point of view, at least. But I will say this, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that we've got 5,000 consultants with 7,000 opinions out there, and at least there's an attempt to uh, reduce the, the opinions uh, from both sides, both with the S520 and with the AIHA's Green Book. So I guess my final comment would be just a, another uh, comment of uh, appreciation for what you and uh, David Miller and and Brad and uh, all the other uh, authors of this book have done, and it's a, just a very valuable resource. And like Joe said earlier, I think I agree with him that this this hopefully will become the the standard by which people uh, refer and rely on the evaluation and recognition, like the title says, and the control of indoor mold. And um, Joe, I want to thank you for including me in this and. Uh, uh, I look forward to other shows, hopefully on the uh, more information on the Green Book. Yes, sir. That's what we'd like to do. Let's get uh, one more from Dr. Dieter. Any questions or final comments? Yeah, just a, a quick comment. I started in the, in the field of you know, environmental, occupational health, industrial hygiene, whatever you want to call it, in the Graduate School of Public Health in 1967. At that time, we didn't have, there was virtually not a single book dedicated to industrial hygiene. It didn't exist. And I think we are at, at, in, in, at that stage over here where finally some books are coming out. Uh, will they be the gold standard in 100 years from now? Probably not. Yeah, there will be a lot of other things being added, and, and even 20 years from now or 30 years from now. But I think it's a wonderful, wonderful start that people who are interested in this field can go to a resource and be up to date of what is happening you know, right now. Well, not right now. You know, any book that is published is the day it's published, it's two years old. Or it's not but you're right, it's though, four yeah, years old. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great point, though, Dieter, because this book does yep. incorporate all the latest research. Obviously, yep. you know, it was published before the revised S520 came out, but it's excellent. Right. What, what I'd like to do here is we've got to wrap things up, but before we do, I want to thank our sponsors one more time. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Right. Before we go, I want to make sure, Don, we give you a chance that if there was anything we missed or any last comments you'd like to make. Well, I, just one thing, and, and, and you and I talked about this. Uh, there's some the, the international conferences that you and I referred to earlier are coming to to uh, specifically the United States, but to North America in general. The first one is Healthy Buildings 2009, and September 13th and 17th, 2009, in Syracuse, New York. Uh, and that's sponsored by the International Society of Indoor Quality and Climate. So that's that's coming up next year. 
And the big conference, the one that uh, just attended in uh, Copenhagen, is coming to Austin, Texas in 2011. So Indoor Air 2011 will be held in Austin, Texas. I would recommend anyone who's interested in the subjects that we talked about today or anything with regards to indoor air quality research, these are the conferences you should attend. Well, thank you for that. I, I'm glad you brought that up. And I also want to thank you for joining us this week. And I look forward to talking to you more down the road on this issue. Thank you. All right. Let's also thank Carl Grimes of Healthy Habitats for joining us today. I want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us. Of course, Glenn Fellman for the IE Connections What's News. Next week, we're planning a show on the revised S520. We're trying to get a couple of the heavyweights in here for that show. We'll see how that comes along when Cliff gets back from Connections. So stay tuned for more information on that at iaqradio.com. Before we go, I also want to make sure I thank the wingman, Chris Boisel, for helping us at the controls today. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Looks like we're ready to set another record for downloads this week. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 